Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that we've been singing about and thinking about already. Thank you for uh, Lawrence and for Paula and for the Wetfoot team. And thank you for bringing us all here again. We, we praise you for that and don't take it for granted at all. And what a joy it is to be together uh, away from the business of London. We pray that as we study these great chapters this morning, you would give us insight and understanding that we might grow in confidence in you for your glory's sake. Amen. How would you define the church? What is the church? Well, I wonder if you've heard of a man called Ambrose Bierce, who is an American journalist um, uh, in the 19th century. And uh, he was actually quite a cynic, a satirist, and he wrote in the 19th century a sort of anti-dictionary that he called the Devil's Dictionary. And uh, it's pretty cynical, sometimes quite funny, uh, sometimes rather uh, painful to read. He doesn't actually have a definition of the church, but he does have a definition of a Christian. And he gives two definitions of Christians. There he is. One is, a Christian is someone who believes that the New Testament is a divinely inspired book, admirably suited to the spiritual needs of his neighbor. And he also suggests that he is one who follows the teachings of Christ insofar as they are not inconsistent with a life of sin. In other words, it's all very well for other people, but I'm going to carry on living my own life. It's all very well... Uh, to say I follow Jesus, but I'm going to do it insofar as it's convenient for me. Uh, he wasn't by any means a Christian, but uh, he actually describes a lot of us. It's not what we want to hear, but it's certainly how we are perceived, isn't it, as Christians? People who are always telling other people what to do. I don't know whether you saw um, Who Do You Think You Are the other night with David Mitchell. Um, I think it's a remarkable program, uh, fascinating finding out about different people's uh, sort of genealogies. But David Mitchell found out about some ancestor who was a, a, a Church of Scotland uh, pastor uh, uh, on, uh, in the Highlands. And everything had been going swimmingly well, and it sounded like a remarkable guy and heard all kinds of good news. And then they started digging up other things about him. And basically, this seemed to be the sort of point, really. Of course, you can't have a really good Christian. There's always got to be some hidden flaw. And if you dig deep enough, you'll find it. And that's certainly what happened on the program. Morality for others. The life of Christ, insofar as it's convenient. Well, it's unfair, a lot of the criticisms we receive, and um, it's certainly a long way from the way that the Bible uh, sees us and what we should be. And so I think we need to think about carefully uh, what the Bible expects of us and what the Bible states of us as the church, as individuals. How should we define the church? Well, one definition I've come across is this, a gathering of God's people in God's place to hear God's word. Now, when do you think that first happened. A gathering of God's people in God's place to hear God's word. When do you think the first, if that is how you define church, when did the first church happen? Any ideas? Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. Well done. And what was significant about Mount Sinai? 
When did the Mount Sinai gathering happen for the first time? Does anyone know? Pentecost. Pentecost, the first time. In the Old Testament, Pentecost uh, is the Greek name for um, uh, this event. Uh, because, of course, the Old Testament was translated into Greek in the Septuagint in between the 3rd and 1st centuries BC. And um, Pentecost literally means uh, uh, 50th. And we'll think about why in a moment. But it's very interesting. When the Greek translators of the Old Testament translated the Bible, the Old Testament, into Greek, they used a very interesting word to describe the first gathering at Mount Sinai in Deuteronomy 4. And that word is ecclesia. Ecclesia, from which we get the word ecclesiastical. And it's uh, usually translated church later on, but of course it literally just means an assembly that is called out. And if something is called out, what does it suggest? A, a group of people that have called out? Well, if it's called out, it means that someone is calling it. There's a prime mover. In other words, God. Uh, it pr- implies a past, something that you're being called out from. And, of course, at the first time, it was out of Egypt. And it's called out for a purpose. It's not just sort of a random happening. It's called out from something for something else. And that is, of course, to live in God's land, in God's way. That's what happened with the first group. But, of course, we find all three of these elements at the first Pentecost, back in Deuteronomy and Exodus, and the new Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Now, one of the interesting things that we'll see as we go through the next chapters of Acts is that you cannot see the full significance of what we read without the Old Testament background. And what you find is that there are a number of similarities between the Old and New Pentecosts, and you can find this in your booklets. If you turn to page 7 of the colored booklets, you'll see uh, there are a lot of similarities. Now, it's called Pentecost because it's the 50th day after the Passover, And it was originally a harvest festival, but it was called uh, Pentecost in Greek because it's the 50th day after the Passover. So in other words, back in the original, uh, God has brought the people out of Egypt and uh, they gather at Mount Sinai. That's where God had told Moses at the burning bush he'd bring them. I'll bring them to this place and they will celebrate what God has done and provided at harvest, but also, of course, with the giving of the law. And at the original Pentecost, there are all kinds of weird and wonderful things going on. You know, they were camped at the foot of the mountain, you can see uh, in the chart. And there was thunder and lightning and trumpet blasts, and everyone was terrified. And there was smoke and fire, because the Lord was there. It was mind-blowing, it was terrifying. In fact, the people were overwhelmed by it, they couldn't handle it. They needed a mediator because it was just too loud, too overwhelming. The presence of God was too much. And so they say, Moses, give us somebody else who can mediate. We don't want to hear the direct word of God. It's too much. And so, of course, God uses Moses himself. And the law was given on tablets of stone. But when we come to the new Pentecost in Acts 2... 50 days after Passover, and of course we know what happened at the new Passover. Jesus was executed on a cross. 50 days uh, after that, in the Pentecost, 
new Pentecost Harvest Festival. All the people are gathered in one place in Jerusalem to celebrate this important event. And there was wind and howling and it was overwhelming. There were tongues of fire coming down. And God spoke. But this time people weren't terrified. They were overwhelmed. But it was a joy. The law wasn't written on stone this time but on the heart by the Spirit, as Jeremiah had predicted. Do you remember Jeremiah 31 in the New Covenant? No longer will I write my law on stone, but on the heart. Something is happening here. Now that is all by way of background to get a sense of what is going on when we come to Acts 2. And we'll see uh, this morning a number of other things that happen that uh, cannot be understood without some of the events of those first uh, years of the people of Israel. And so we're going to see what happens when God's Spirit comes and what effect that has on this ragtag bunch of people. So when God's Spirit comes, God's people, this is the first thing, they start talking. They start talking. And... uh, the wind comes, uh, the, the uh, disciples were a little confused, they were a little cowed uh, in their original hiding place after Jesus has ascended, and then they have these weird experiences that the ecclesia in Sinai originally had, but they start talking in tongues, in other languages, and you'll see in your booklets and on the screen, there's a map of where all these different people came from. And the important thing is that um, they're speaking in ways that people who spoke other languages could understand. Now that provokes another little detour that we must make. And that is the question of culture and whose culture we're dealing with. You see, there were a lot of different people in Jerusalem for Pentecost that that day. And you can see on the map all the different uh, places where they came from. And it was in the Roman Empire and beyond, in the old Babylonian Empire. So there were people who, after the exile, you see, had decided that actually they were better off staying put. They'd actually carved out quite a nice life for themselves. It's a classic thing, you know, after empires wane, people stay. And, um, and so the, the, these Jewish people come from all over the world to come to Jerusalem for this moment. Now, the interesting thing to realize at this point is that they're all Jewish, Maybe a few Gentile God-fearers or proselytes who converted to Judaism. But the important thing is, they are Jewish. They're united ethnically, if not culturally. Culturally, they're very different. All the result of the exile of Babylon. Now, many people talk about Pentecost being a reversal of an important historical event. Many people think of it as the reversal of the Tower of Babylon or Babel. But it's the Tower of Babylon. It's the same word. Back in Genesis 11, you remember God scatters the peoples because they tried to sort of take on God. Well, at Pentecost, you've got peoples gathered. But it's not everybody. It's just Jews. So actually, rather than seeing Pentecost and Acts 2 as a reversal of the Tower of Babylon, it's actually probably more appropriate at this stage to see it as a reversal of the exile of Babylon. In other words, people have been distributed all over the world as Jewish people. And then at Pentecost, after the exile, they're brought back and united. They speak different languages. But as a result of the Spirit come down, they can all understand. 
It's a remarkable moment. So there were people speaking Cappadocian, there were people speaking Median and Parthian, there were people speaking Egyptian and Libyan and Greek. They could understand what Peter was saying. There's an important reality, an important truth that this uh, throws up, that actually within the gospel there is diverse unity, not uniformity. In other words, when the Spirit comes, he doesn't obliterate cultural difference. There's a sense in Acts 2, isn't there, that actually he's saying, I'm going to speak to you in your language so that you can understand It's not saying you've got to learn Greek so that you can understand me. No, I'm going to speak to you in your language. So it doesn't obliterate cultural differences. It celebrates them. uh, God enables them to hear his message in their sometimes newer cultures. And that's a marked difference from Islam. Islam obliterates cultural difference and effectively turns the world culturally into Arabs. I wonder if you've heard of a chap called Professor Lamin Sane, who was from the Gambia uh, and was from an Islamic family. And uh, he is now the professor of world Christianity at Yale in the States. Um, And I heard him speak a few years ago. He's a remarkable man. He got converted uh, uh, as a young man. And one of the main reasons that attracted him to Christianity was that it actually celebrated his Africanness. It didn't say you have to become Arab like all Muslims have to become effectively, speaking only Arabic to hear God and wearing Arab dress and all the rest. Of course, over the history of missions, we've made lots of mistakes and a lot of the problems with British missionaries over the British Empire era was that we effectively tried to make people British Christians and that was a mistake, a crass error. But many, many Christians through these years have realized that was a mistake. People like Hudson Taylor saw that you didn't have to do that. And he once famously said, let us in all things unsinful become Chinese. And Lamin Sane wrote this fascinating book called Translating the Message, which is basically a history of how Christianity has gone around the world and actually celebrated different cultures, as well as in its darker moments obliterated them. But that's not true to its heart. And one of the fascinating things is that actually, if you think about it, a lot of African languages survived precisely because, directly because, the Bible was translated into them. They weren't written down before. If the Bible hadn't, the the, the impetus to to, to articulate and write down and work out a grammar for African languages came from Bible translators. And I think we're going to talk much more about this in two mornings' time when we think about the gospel going out to the Gentile world. But this is, I need to flag up at this stage, because it's saying that cultural difference is not wrong. That there can be unity within that. And Pentecost shows that. But let's get back to Acts 2. And these people are speaking in tongues, different languages that people can understand. And the people are confused by these tongues of flame and, and, and fire and smoke and all the rest. What does it mean? Well, Peter naturally is the one to explain it all. He gets up and speaks. And Luke just gives us the bullet points. He just gives us the bullet points. And um, you know, there's much more that he will have said, uh, and certainly more than we've got time for now. 
But what is fascinating is that after just an initial mention of what the Spirit is doing, the Spirit fades from view. And it's not about the Spirit at all. It's about what the Spirit is doing to point to. And what are, what are um, Peter's main points? Well, I think there are four main points that he gives in his explanation. And uh, the first is that the last days have begun. I've called this New Pentecost Explored. I thought uh, some people would like that. Um, and we get this long quotation from Joel about, uh, uh, you see in verse 17, in the last days, God says dot, dot, dot will happen. And basically, Peter is now saying, look, you see all this stuff going on? That means the last days are here. They've begun. The last days isn't some sort of, you know, just a few weeks before Jesus returns at the last minute. No, it's the whole period between Jesus' first coming and second coming. It is all the last days. And, and Peter is saying, you see this spirit thing going on? That proves to us from Joel that they've begun. We're in them now. And basically in verse 22, he says, look, this has begun. Joel said that this has begun, and this is the most important thing about it. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth. You've all heard about him. He was sort of, you know, on the front pages just a few weeks ago. It was big news in Jerusalem and Judea and all around. This guy who'd been massing crowds around him, executed on a cross. You all know about that. Peter says that. It was big news. But he's pretty direct. Look in verse 23. You killed him. He doesn't pull any punches. You killed him. It happened in this city. You did it. And yet the amazing thing is at the same time, it was God's idea. You see that in verse 23? This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Do you see? We were thinking a bit about this yesterday. It was God's purpose and it was human purpose, both together. You can't play them off against each other. The Bible won't let you. It was God's purpose for Jesus to go to the cross for two reasons. One is because Jesus is the anointed king, this Jesus of history. And so basically you'll notice that all the time Peter is backing up his case with scripture. He's quoting the Old Testament. So this time he quotes from Psalm 16. And he compares and contrasts Jesus with his predecessor king, David. David died, was buried. His tomb had become a tourist attraction. You know, there are all kinds of trinkets. You could buy postcards, T-shirts, pens and rubbers and bouncy balls and all kinds of things at David's tomb. Everybody knew about it. His body was there. But the amazing thing is that Jesus' tomb never became a tourist attraction. If there had been a tomb, don't you think it would be the biggest tourist attraction today in history? More than that, though, David, the greatest king, had anticipated the day when one after him would come, who was also anointed like him, a Messiah, a Christ. David was a Christ. Jesus is a Christ in David's line, an anointed king. But yet, unlike him and Solomon and Hezekiah and all the other guys, unlike them, he would not stay dead. That's why you have the quotation from Psalm 16. 
Do you see verse 27? You will not abandon me to the grave, nor let your Holy One see decay. Peter's point is that great David's greater son is here, and he's alive. It's happened in history. This one you saw die is alive. Jesus is rebuilding the monarchy of David, albeit in a rather radical way. And then more than that, the Jesus of history is the exalted and returning Lord. And this is why we get the quotation from Psalm 110. This famous verse is one of the most quoted verses uh, from the Old Testament in the whole New Testament. If you look in uh, uh, on page, uh, where are we, page four of the colored booklets, you'll see that Psalm 110 is quoted all over the place in the New Testament. It's very significant. And you have these strange words in verse 34, 35. The Lord said to my Lord, so David is saying, the Lord said to my Lord, so who are these two lords? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's pointing to his ascension and session when he sits down at the right hand of God and his return, the day when his enemies will be a footstool. I mean, on its own, it doesn't really make any sense at all. Who is this? But along comes Jesus, and it's all perfectly clear. Jesus is coming back to reign as Lord. And you'll notice, pretty much all the sermons in Acts declare that Jesus is Lord. That is the heart of the message. In other words, whether you like it or not, whatever culture you're from, as we will see in the days to come, whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus is your Lord. The question is, will you recognize the fact? And if you do recognize the fact, what on earth do you do? Well, the crowd asks that. Well, you do exactly what Joel told you to do. You repent and turn back. Look at verse 21 of Acts 2. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what do you do? Call on the name of the Lord. In other words, trust him, not yourself, not your own means, not anything else. Call on the Lord and you'll be saved. It's a major decision, of course. In the West, we think little of it. I mean, it's fantastic we got Lawrence being baptized later. If you've not been baptized, you must at some point. But uh, in some parts of the world, to be baptized is a massive thing. It's a radical thing. Um, As you know, I travel to Turkey quite a lot these days. And um, uh, you will have heard uh, of the Malatya murders uh, just nearly two years ago now in a central town in Turkey. Uh, uh, Two Turkish Christians and a German Christian were brutally tortured and then murdered after about an hour. Uh, The Christian community in Turkey is tiny. There are about 3,000 evangelical Christians in a population of 70 million. So, you know, the population of 70 million and a national church the size of all souls. And, um, And so pretty much they all know each other. They all sort of know someone who knows someone. So pretty much everybody knows these guys who were who were killed. Um, and I've been three times in the last year or two now, and I'm hoping to make it sort of every six-month uh, thing in my work with Langham Partnership. Um, and the whole Malatya thing is talked about a lot. 
Every time I go, it comes up in conversation. Well, it would. If three members of all souls had been brutally murdered and executed, uh, brutally tortured and executed, we would talk about that a lot, wouldn't we? And, um, but when I was there last time, just a couple of months ago, they were, I was absolutely blown away. One of the pastors was to, uh, from a relatively close town to Malatya was talking about uh, two recent converts in his church. And uh, um, Turkish uh, people have to carry identity cards all the time, and it's a very small little plastic card, and there's only a few details on it, but one of them is religion. And uh, these two believers, after the Malatya murders, realized that they needed to stand up and be counted. So they, about three weeks after the murders, they went to the local uh, registry office or whatever it is and said, we'd like our cards changed, please. Can you put Christian on them? I was blown away by that. Incredibly brave. That is effectively what baptism is in a way, isn't it? Or another part of the world, um, Singapore. This is Simon Chan, who's a theology professor at Trinity College in Singapore. He wrote this about baptism there. In the context of Singapore, the act of baptism is seen even by non-Christians as the most critical moment of a person's life. Traditional Chinese do not mind their children going to church. In fact, they'll say, well, the church can teach you good things, but don't get baptized. Because the moment you get baptized, you burn your bridges with your traditional religion. People understand baptism better than some of our evangelical Christians, he writes. I'm an advisor to a local Assemblies of God church, and I know some of the people in our church who've been in our church for years, who have, not taken up, who have even taken up leadership positions in the church, but can't bring themselves to baptism. You see, crucial to our understanding of what this is, is that it's a corporate and public experience. It is saying, I've changed sides. Notice how Peter puts it in verse 40. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized. You see, divorce yourself from the corrupt generation and join God's people. It's about whose side you're on. Before we move on, just another little digression. A sure sign of the Spirit is people start talking. And Luke's making the point that for all the miraculous and weird things that go on, and we'll say more about that in the seminar, but when God's Spirit comes, people start speaking. So you can see those verses there in chapter 4. We cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. There we are, you see, witnesses. They see, they speak. Verse 31 of chapter 4, filled with the Holy Spirit, they spoke the word of God boldly. Well, it's a risky thing to do. You don't do that by accident. But when the Spirit comes, you can't help but speak. Chapter 5, we must obey God. We are witnesses of these things, the apostles tell the Sanhedrin. We've got to do it. And chapter 5, verse 42, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Why? Because it's good. Jesus said, you will be witnesses. In fact, no, he said, you will be my witnesses. And when the Spirit comes, that's exactly what happens. They witness to Jesus. And that's what Pentecost was all about. And uh, basically, um, 
you can analyze Peter's sermons. And uh, I've got this again on page five of the color booklets. You'll see that um, uh, Luke's account of these sermons gets shorter and shorter. But the key points are you killed him, God raised him, we saw him, so repent. It's interesting, though, when Peter starts speaking to Gentiles, he doesn't say you, he says they. But the essence is the same. Have a look through those uh, chapters on your own at some point, if you would like. But what happens after this? You've got 3,000 people getting baptized on the first day. I don't know where they found all the water. It must have been chaos. Um, but, you know, great, fabulous. But immediately they start living together as a community. Do you see? They've come out of one group and joined another group. So they see themselves as as part of their identity, as members of something bigger. It's not an individual thing, although it has to be done individually. Well, they get committed. And I think there are huge challenges to us at All Souls in all kinds of ways. And I speak entirely for myself. I, I have sort of, you know... Occasionally, I have sort of hermit-like tendencies. I just want to sort of crawl into a little hole and be on my own sometimes. Um, well, you know, we're all different and, and, and so on. Um, and maybe there are times and, and places where that's appropriate. But that must never be an excuse not to be committed to the wider body. And to be committed usually involves sacrifice and cost. It's not something that comes naturally. So have a look at chapter 2, verse 42, rightly a famous verse. They devoted themselves. You know, this is passion language, isn't it? It's not just they did. They devoted themselves to to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Four massive commitments. Well, the first one is to learning. And it's obvious to see why. I mean, even just from what we've seen of Peter's sermon, it's absolutely jam-packed of stuff. You want to find out more. You want to read. You want to think. You want to listen. And so, you know, the disciples, of course, had spent years with Jesus, hearing it from the horse's mouth. They, 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 they had all this wealth of knowledge and understanding. And after Pentecost, after the cross, resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost, everything had slotted into place, and it now made sense. Do you remember that bit in John near the beginning where Jesus talks about how, you know, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And, and John sort of adds in brackets, he was talking about his body. And the disciples didn't understand this until after the resurrection. So it's like they'd sort of been filling the sort of memory banks with Jesus' teaching. But it was only when we get to this point that suddenly the lights go on. I see what he was on about now. And once they see, they want to tell. Because that's what witnesses do. And so the apostles were teaching everybody all that they had learned from the scriptures and from the Lord. And what a wonderful opportunity. Wouldn't you just give everything just to sit at their feet? They're committed to learning. The, the, this task of teaching and, and uh, growing the disciples was a, a big one. And we'll see that that raised all kinds of tensions for the apostles, as we'll see in a moment. But they're committed to loving one another. So we find that uh, in chapter 2, verse 44, the believers were together and they had everything in common. Uh, 
And verse 45, they sold their possessions and gave as, they, as people had need. And it's not a flash in the pan. We find if you go over to chapter 4, verse 32, we find that they shared everything so that there were no needy people amongst them. This is not communism. It's not social control. It's spontaneous generosity. It's community-mindedness. It's not some hierarchy insisting that everybody gives everything away. It's a spontaneous generosity. They didn't abolish possessions, but they did seek to get rid of possessiveness. Everyone was together. Everybody was needed. Everybody was loved. And if people were in need, those needs were met. There's a massive challenge uh, to us here, isn't there? It's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to spend money. But is everything really necessary? Could we love one another financially better? Remember, the church doesn't just mean members of all souls, of course. It means brothers and sisters around the world. So do we really need that fifth foreign holiday or the new car annually or that new jacket every new fashion season? How do we work out our giving? So that nobody was in need. I'm supremely grateful for a number of people who have heavily subsidized Cornerstone. We wouldn't be able to do it without it. We're making a massive loss that people have given so that people can be subsidized. And I, I praise God for that. That's what church should be about. They're committed to remembering. Look in verse 46, the breaking of bread. Now, breaking of bread simply could mean just hospitality. Um, you know, having a meal together. That's what you do when you have a meal together you break bread but it probably and it could just mean hospitality but it probably means a bit more so in Luke 22 that's what Jesus did at the last supper he broke bread and said when you do this do this in remembrance of me why because I'm going to the cross that's the ultimate generosity isn't it So do you see, straight after receiving God's Spirit at the new Pentecost, the believers regularly remember the death of God's Son at the new Passover. The Harvest Festival follows Passover. And that's what happens in the new Pentecost, after the new Passover of the Lamb. It's interesting, you see, you won't find Luke explaining the cross very much in Acts. He assumes you've read his first book. It's all there. He assumes that. But the cross is always in the background. It is always the foundation. And last but not least, they're committed to praying. And you see in chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 46, they praise God every day in the temple courts. What better place to do it? Because they all have access. But they don't need to be in the temple courts to pray. They can be anywhere. And in fact, we find that after persecution comes, they pray anyway. Pray all the more fervently. Chapter 4. Because their joy and their newfound relationship with God in Christ means that they love to pray. Just to talk with him. 
Without the temple, they're not adrift, they're not cut off. They don't actually need the temple anymore. They have the spirit. But what better place to remember what they now have than to be praying in the temple? Why not? And what we find is that God's work starts growing after this. It starts small, but it gets bigger and bigger. And uh, on page, where are we? Um, Page six of the colored booklets. Um, We find that um, in the middle it starts small, that over chapters three to six, you find a sort of a, a, a repetition. Some of the events seem to happen Uh, similarly again and yet each time what you'll notice if you work through them is that each time it's bigger there are more people involved or the the intensity is greater or the persecution has got worse so there's healings and there's preaching they get arrested the first time they just have a sort of informal hearing uh, with uh, Peter and John and then later it's in chapter 5 it's all the apostles with a formal trial And uh, they pray for boldness in the face of persecution, and that prayer is answered. Then you have issues with money and stewardship, and you have the news spreading. So there seems to be a parallel going on, and yet it's ratcheting up. It's getting bigger and bigger. But inevitably, such rapid growth is going to lead to major tensions. Of course, because when someone gets converted and when someone gets baptized, they don't become perfect. They bring all the baggage of their old life into the church with them. We don't leave our baggage at the door. And so we find that there are growing pains within this brand new community. And the first one is very shocking in chapter 5. This extraordinary thing of Ananias and Sapphira. Don't have time for the depth, uh, in-depth analysis of this, but it demonstrates from the start, lest we have any illusions, that sin rears its head within the Christian community. Uh, What is shocking about this story is the immediacy and radical nature of God's judgment. That is a shock. Basically, what happens, as you remember, is that these two, uh, well, various people have been spontaneously giving, and the man who gets the name Barnabas because uh, of what he uh, gives spontaneously, he sells some property and gives the money to the church. He didn't have to do that, but he wanted to do that, and it helped people in need in the church community. Uh, these guys saw a bit of the glory he got. So they thought, I know, we'll do the same thing, but we'll keep back a little bit. Keep it to ourselves. Um, So everybody will think we're really kind and generous, that we're committed to the community, but we'll keep our little nest egg without telling anyone. So we'll, you know, it's a win-win. But actually it was a lose-lose. The community lost them. And they lost everything. Um, What on earth do we do with this story? Because, you know, God uses the apostles to challenge them. And independently, this man and the wife, they drop down dead and are buried. 
Well, again, I think we need to understand Old Testament precedent. That actually, as this new community is being formed in these early chapters of Acts, Luke is deliberately throwing us back to a number of things in the old community formation to help us understand what's going on. So if Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and 20 was the, the constitution of Israel, and the next chapters in the Pentateuch of uh, you know, Exodus and um, all the way to Deuteronomy is about the first generation of this new people, we find a number of events happened in those years that actually are mirrored or paralleled with the new Pentecost community. So, actually, we find that there was an event not dissimilar to Ananias and Sapphira. In the book of Joshua, with the generation entering the land, we find that there was a man called Achan. And if you turn to page 8 in the colored booklets, you'll see this diagram. And there... All the people bring silver and gold and everything together into the Lord's house, into the treasury. And it's very interesting that Achan took some of the devoted things from this treasure. The words in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that Luke would have known, the, the, the word that he used literally, uh, the Greek is nosphizdomai, which I like, it's a rather nice word, is it? Nosphizdomai, it sort of says it all really. It literally means to uh, keep back or embezzle. And it's exactly the same word that Luke uses in chapter 5, verse 2. Literally, Ananias kept back nosphizdomai. He kept back money for himself. It's the same word. It's almost as if Luke is... You know, for those who have ears to hear, flagging up that this is something similar. And what happens to Achan? Well, it leads to all kinds of detrimental effects on the people. They get defeated by the enemy. And the Lord sees Achan's sin, and Joshua confronts him. And Achan confesses his covetousness and theft, and he's stoned. He dies. You see, it seems rather extreme, and it is extreme, but the point is that sin has a profound impact on the community because we're not individual islands. When I sin, it affects you. When you sin, it affects me. What I do in the privacy of my own home affects what I do in the public arena of the church or work or neighborhood. There is no such thing as private sin. neither in terms of its effects nor in terms of its visibility because, of course, God sees. And in uh, Joshua 7, Achan is buried with a pile of stones which remains to this day. And what you'll notice briefly, uh, it's a shorter account than Joshua, but what you find that Luke does something in parallel to the Achan business with Ananias and his wife. They literally kept back, embezzled. They lie, when they're confronted, they're accused of lying to the Holy Spirit, lying not to men but to God. Peter confronts the two, and they die, and they are buried. And great fear seized all who heard. It is extreme, 
It doesn't happen very often. But it's real because God sees. And there is a warning there. And one of the things I think we've got to realize is that there is a connection between what we do and what happens to us. Sin can lead to sickness. It can. Even, you know, it may be just a sort of simple level of psychological stress that has psychosomatic effects. It affects our body. You know, we get more headaches or we can't sleep or whatever it is. Now, just because I have insomnia doesn't mean you can draw conclusions from that. It's a very interesting little verse in Corinthians where Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians 11 about how people were abusing the Lord's Supper and, and what a sort of travesty it was. And he actually says that this is why some of you are sick and some of you have fallen asleep. And you will know if you know Paul's letters that falling asleep is a, a way that he describes Christians dying. We don't take sin very seriously. Now, I'm not suggesting that, you know, if you steal a book from the bookstall, you're going to drop down dead. I'm just suggesting don't steal a book from the bookstall. <laughs> so those who took some yesterday, no, 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 no. <laughs> you see, I, I think the point is that my sin affects you and yours affects me because we're together. We belong to one another. I need you and you need me. I belong to you and you belong to me. So that's the first growing pain, sort of rotten apples in the barrel. And what do rotten apples do? They affect all the others. And secondly, growing pains, well, there are divisions. So we've seen that there was a community discipline in Joshua 7, there is in Acts 5. Well, in Acts 6, we find that there are divisions already. Now, the problem, this is a problem of life. This is a problem of growth. It's a problem because there are a lot of people. And when you have a lot of people, you need organization. Otherwise, you have chaos and it's survival of the fittest and strongest. And that's the antithesis of the church, isn't it? The church is about looking after the weak and the least fit, which makes me very relieved. You see, this actually is a problem when, you know, you've got the division between the, the, the Hebrew Jews and the, the Grecian Jews. You see verse, um, chapter 6, verse 1. Uh, they complained that the Hebraic Jews, among, uh, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, do you see that this is a problem of life? It's a problem because of something good. It's a problem because of people's generosity. It's not that there wasn't any food around or that there wasn't any help around. It's just that they got left out because of poor organization. So they're, they're good problems to have, but they're problems nonetheless. Rapid growth and generosity. There's no malice here. There's no sort of um, you know, vindictiveness or something. It's just the nature of things that are large and busy. But again, there's Old Testament precedent. Moses got rather overwhelmed in the early days. There was grumbling amongst the people. And there were instances of unfairness and injustice. And basically, because Moses was the leader, they would come to him and say, Moses, please help us out. And, you know, he was just overwhelmed by this. 
Now, it's fascinating if you look in the color booklets on page 8, you'll see that there is a parallel between Exodus 18, for instance, and Acts 6. The people grumbled, and the fascinating thing is, again, Luke uses the same Greek word that Exodus 18, well, 15, 16, 17, and 18 uses of the people grumbling. It's another great Greek word. If you learn one Greek word today, it's this one. It's the Greek word for grumbling is gongusmos. It's very sort of onomatopoeic, isn't it? Gongusmos. There's a lot of gongusmos going on. Can't have any of that. And um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the people of Israel in Exodus were gongusmosing around the place, and it was a nightmare, and they were grumbling against Moses and in Acts 6, verse 1, the word that Luke uses to describe the Grecian Jews complaining against the Hebraic Jews is gongusmos. So something needs to be done. Now, with Moses, he had a very wise father-in-law called Jethro, who said, look, Moses, you're getting overwhelmed. You can't do all this. It's going to wear you out, he says. It's not good for this to happen. And it's very interesting that Jethro says to Moses in Exodus 18, he says, you must be the people's representative and you've got to teach them the decrees and laws that they've got to abide by. You haven't got time for all this. You're their leader and their teacher. They need you. So delegate. So on Jethro's advice, that's exactly what Moses does in Exodus 18. He selects trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, who are not in it for themselves. And he says, right, you do this job and I'll carry on leading because somebody's got to do it. Well, isn't that interesting? Look what happens with the apostles. They're getting overwhelmed by this and say, look, this is a right need. There is a problem here. We've got to sort this out. It's not that they ignored it. It's not that they said that it was unimportant. They said, no, we've got to do this. So verse 2, the, the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it's not, it would not be right for us, look, to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, it's not because it's too menial. It's not because it's beneath them. It's because they can't do everything. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. Pretty high requirements for waiters, isn't it? We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will look, give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Like Moses gave his attention to being the people's representative and teaching the decrees and laws. Somebody's got to do it, but somebody's got to do the tables as well. It's fascinating. The seven names that get chosen... They're all Greek. In other words, as the church has gathered, the Grecian Jews and the Hebrew Jews, uh, b believers, um, realized that actually this was a problem that needed to be dealt with, and so they chose. The apostles didn't choose these names. The people did. They said, right, we're going to choose these seven. They were all Greek names. And the Hebraic converts agreed, yes, this was a good idea. Let's make sure that the Grecian widows don't get left out. We're going to have Greek guys who are going to make sure they're included. And, of course, Stephen, the Greek name Stephanos, which means a crown, Stephen was one of them. So do you see, that's actually quite big of the Hebraic believers, saying, no, we're not going to muscle in on this. We're going to allow them to tell us where the food should go. 
So there was a division on racial grounds, and they allowed, if you like, the minority or the, 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 the sort of um, the lower down the pecking order guys to appoint leaders to do the job. We're going to come back to that um, in, a, in a couple of days, that principle. Now, these are all key ingredients of a healthy church. But what's it all for if we are not to be witnesses of the one who made us and who included us? It's a community bound together by one common person, Jesus. The Spirit came as a sort of floodlight ministry onto Jesus, and we see that in Peter's sermon in Pentecost in Acts 2. The Spirit comes on the people. They, they, they're overwhelmed by these extraordinary experiences. They speak in languages that people can understand so that they can understand Jesus. And Jim Packer has this wonderful illustration for the uh, Holy Spirit's ministry. He, he describes how once he was going to speak about uh, the, the, uh, the, the theology of the Spirit at a meeting, and he, he was going into a, some grand building, and he suddenly noticed it was evening that it was being floodlit. And the building looked magnificent, just like All Souls does with its new lighting on the spire. It's magnificent. But you don't hunt around for the lights, trying to look where they are. You look where the lights point. So if you go to a great cathedral or parliament or whatever, the lights will be buried in the ground and facing up. But you don't look down at them. You look at where they're pointing. And that's like the Holy Spirit. He loves us to look to him. He loves that. So what is the church? Well, here are two different uh, descriptions of the church. One by David Bosch, who was a great South African uh, theologian and missiologist. He was tragically killed in a car crash uh, with various members of his family, uh, I don't know, about 15 years ago or something. But he wrote this. The church is the community of believers gathered by divine election, calling, new birth, and conversion. In other words, we didn't start this thing. Which lives in communion with the triune God, in other words, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is granted the forgiveness of sins and sent to serve the world in solidarity with all mankind. The church, and this is, I like this, is a foreign body in the world. Without a faithful, sustained contact with God, the church loses her transcendence. Without a true solidarity with the world, she loses her relevance. And then here's another one called by John Havlick. I don't know anything about him, but I like this. He said this, The church is never a place, but always a people. It's never a fold, but always a flock. It's never a sacred building, but always a believing assembly. The church is you who pray, not where you pray. So let us pray, even in this sort of impressive hall. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your Spirit's work creating and crafting a new community out of a ragtag bunch of people like us. We're not special, we're not important we're not perfect but you're interested in us 
and you're interested in us together, we pray that we might live together as your people and shine like stars in a crooked and depraved generation that, might pe- that people might give you praise because they would look at us and think there's only one way this happened and that's you. For your glory's sake. Amen.